Good evening. I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone up here. Earlier this week, Pastor Matt texted me to ask how my week was going. It was very nice, how he could pray for my sermon prep. I texted back that my week had been rather stressful, and he wasn't helping by calling it a sermon. I preferred devotional, maybe. For those of you who are in my Sunday school class last summer, I'm afraid this may be a bit of a review since Pastor asked me to pick my favorite judge. I taught the judges last summer. This may, it may surprise you that my favorite was Samuel because he's not in the book of Judges, but he is called a judge in 1 Samuel 7 and is the last of the judges prior to King Saul. To set the stage for those of you who haven't read the book of Judges recently, by the time Samuel comes on the scene, it has been approximately 260 years since the death of Joshua. To put that in perspective, that would take us back before the American Revolution. It's easy to read the Bible and lump it all together, but for Samuel, men like Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb would have been ancient history, like George Washington or Ben Franklin to us. Israel had been cycling through periods of oppression by the Midianites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. Whenever they fell away from God, he would let them have difficulties and fall into bondage. And then when they turned back to him, he would use men like Ehud, Barak, or Gideon to deliver them. By Judges 13, the Philistines were the enemy. And the setting is Judges 15.13. Ah, well, I lost my place already. Anyway, you may wonder why I chose to start in Judges 13, which is the beginning of the account of Samson. I lost my place because I was in Judges 15. Judges 13.1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Samson and Samuel were contemporaries. Born nearly at the same time with many similarities, but with starkly different outcomes. In many ways, they are a study in contrast. They grew up maybe 30 miles apart. They were both the result of miraculous births although Samson's was perhaps a little more so. Both mothers, if you recall, were barren. Samuel's mother, Hannah, prayed earnestly to God for a son, so earnestly that the high priest Eli thought she was drunk. God answered her prayer with Samuel, and she dedicated him to the Lord, apparently as a Nazarite. We have no record of Samson's mother praying for a child, but it seems likely and the angel of the Lord himself came to announce Samson's coming and that Samson was to be dedicated to God as a Nazarite. No haircuts, no touching dead things, no eating any grape products. Both boys dedicated to God from birth, brought up knowing they were different and looking different, that long hair if nothing else. Samson grows up to be the mightiest warrior of the Bible, a one-man wrecking crew, a man's man, a hero. Samuel was different. He wasn't a mighty warrior like Samson or so many of the other judges. In fact, Samuel seems rather ordinary when you read through his life. But God used him to deliver Israel and to turn the people back to God like none of the other judges were able to accomplish. 
something that Samson in particular failed at miserably. One thing that struck me as I studied Samuel is that even though he led Israel as judge for decades and is in 13 or 14 chapters, he is usually a supporting character. What stories do you think of involving Samuel? His birth? Hannah is really the focal point there. Anointing a king, perhaps. Well, those are the stories that focus on Saul or David. God calling Samuel as a boy? Well, Eli is really the focus of that story. Confronting Saul for his sin? Well, again, the focus is on Saul. In really only one chapter, one event, is Samuel the main character. I found this encouraging and also challenging. I think we all think of ourselves as the center of our story, at least I tend to. Life just kind of revolves around me. And Samuel wasn't the center of his own story. The book of 1 Samuel wasn't really even about Samuel. God used Samuel mightily, but he was just a man that God used. None of us are the center of our story either. Trying to make ourselves the focus will end up a mess, like Samson. The best we can aspire to be is used by God, like Samuel, to impact others around us. Now, we don't see Samson after his birth until he's all grown up. We don't often see Bible characters as children. Samuel is an exception to that. You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. I won't ask any of you to read like I would in Sunday school, but you can still follow along. Samuel is a unique character that we get to see as a boy, as a man in the prime of life, and in his old age. We'll start out in chapter 226. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that verse sound familiar? It's the exact same wording that Luke uses to describe the growth of Jesus as a boy. I guess there's no higher praise. The rest of 1 Samuel 2 is a prophet condemning Eli for not stopping his wicked sons, which sets up chapter 3, where God calls Samuel. We'll start out in chapter 3, one, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. 
And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This story is pretty straightforward. You've probably known it since before you were Samuel's age. Two questions came to my mind, though, as I read through it. The first is, why did God not identify himself? The confusion with Samuel going back and forth with Eli adds some tension to the narrative. When's he going to figure it out? But in the event itself, what was the purpose? Poor Samuel just got confused. Poor Eli just had his sleep, get, sleep keep getting interrupted. When God called other prophets, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, there was no confusion about who it was that was calling. Why did God leave poor Samuel in the dark? Pun intended. I thought of two possibilities. The first is that Eli would be sure and ask about the message in the morning. God knew Samuel would not want to pass this message along. Throughout his life, Samuel's ministry would be characterized by telling people hard things, confronting sin with truth from God. Eli was his mentor, his guardian, and he had to confront him with hard truth from God. That's not easy. That's not enjoyable. This first time, God made sure Samuel had no choice but to tell the message or tell a lie. He could not keep quiet. God was already preparing Samuel for a life of ministry. The second possibility is that God was establishing a relationship with Samuel, a conversation. He was calling for Samuel, but Samuel had to respond. It wasn't just a message dump. This established a pattern for Samuel's life also. Time and again, we see Samuel communicating with God when he is uncertain, when he is afraid, when he is angry, that relationship started this night, and it lasted Samuel's whole life. The second question I had reading this passage is, why did God give Samuel the message at all? He'd already given the message to Eli in a more detailed fashion by this other prophet in chapter 2. Why make poor Samuel confront his mentor at all? Three possibilities I thought of. The first was that it confirmed God was speaking through Samuel. It, the message was the same as what was brought by another more established man of God. And when it came to pass, it validated Samuel as a prophet. 
The second was that it forced Samuel to choose between loyalty to Eli and loyalty to God. The third was that it got Samuel used to giving confrontational messages. Samuel had to learn to boldly tell people the word of God regardless of how they might respond. The rest of the chapter reads, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is Samuel in a nutshell. God's word came to Samuel. Samuel passed it on. That was the ministry of Samuel. That sounds pretty much just like what a pastor does today. He passes along God's message to the people. Nothing spectacular, just ordinary faithfulness, except that in God's sight, faithfulness is spectacular. And God used ordinary Samuel to impact his whole country. Now, God's not likely to use any of us to impact our whole country or even our whole state. But are we spending time studying God's word so that we have a message from God to pass along to others? I have to admit, if I'm not teaching, I find it hard to be motivated to really do the serious Bible study. I can only imagine how Samuel would have loved to have had this whole Bible to study. He had the Pentateuch, the first five books. We are so privileged. God speaks to us when we study his word. Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Our response needs to be, speak, Lord, your servant is reading. Okay, we've got a lot more of Samuel to cover. Eli dies. So do Hophni and Phinehas, his sons. The ark is captured. Apparently Shiloh, where Samuel was living, was destroyed at this point. I really hate to skip the ark coming back to Israel from the Philistines because it's one of my favorite Bible stories of all of the whole book. But it doesn't involve Samuel. So we're moving on. Samuel next appears in chapter 7. We'll start in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years have gone by, with Samuel's preaching being instrumental in bringing the nation to a point of seeking after God. The contrast with Samson is stark. God equipped Samson with supernatural strength. And all he accomplished was getting his fellow Israelites to hand him over to the Philistines. You remember that story? In Judges 15, Samson was accomplishing great things in defeating the, Israel, the Philistines. And in 15.9, the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, 
Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And Samson fights and he kills a bunch of Philistines. In the end, Samson likely died in the Philistine temple shortly before 1 Samuel chapter 7 takes place. That sets the stage. Interestingly, Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Samson, Samuel. We'll read verses 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel 7. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. It's interesting that Samuel says, seeking God and being sad about your situation is not enough. They had to do something. Only after seeing the Israelites prove their commitment to God does Samuel take the next step in verse 5. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. There are other times of national revival for the Israelites, but I think this may be the best. I couldn't think of a better description of one anywhere. They confessed their sins, they fasted, they got rid of idols, they sought God, they mourned, and they served God. That's about as complete a description of a revival as you could come across. After seeing such rebellion and immorality, and by the end, acceptance of Philistine domination, the change is stark. Obviously, God deserves all the credit for what happened in Israel. But God credits Samuel. Samuel was judging Israel. God gives Samuel the credit. Samuel simply preached the word of God. Samson's supernatural strength accomplished nothing in changing the hearts of the Israelites. He killed a few Philistines, but there were always more. Deliverance came through Samuel and his faithfulness to God's word and his prayer. Moving on to verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that, we, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. We had the confrontation part of Samuel's ministry in the beginning of the chapter. Here's the prayer part. Does it take more courage to lead an army like Gideon or Barak or Ehud or to stand in prayer like Samuel? I don't know if there's a right answer to that question. God calls different men to different roles. God directed Jephthah, Gideon, and Barak to lead armies. That's not who Samuel was. Samuel was a prayer warrior. Look at verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. The night before I taught this in Sunday school, we had our last thunderstorm. It was a lot of fun. I thought the coincidence was cool. I paused in my studying for 15 minutes just to go watch it. I love watching a thunderstorm. The power of God with the lightning. This one must have been one doozy of a thunderstorm. That it completely routed this Philistine army. Moving on to verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What was the point of this Ebenezer stone? I think it was a reminder of God's faithfulness. You remember the rocks that God had Joshua bring up out of the Jordan River after he parted the Jordan. To pile up there as a memorial to what God had done. This is the same thing. The implication is that if God has helped in the past, he will also help in the future. In a few chapters, we'll see King Saul, after a victory, set up a memorial to himself. Samuel here continues pointing the people to God and challenging them to follow God after the victory, just like he had done before the victory. These memorials are important. We forget so quickly. And they're also an opportunity to explain to others. Something that seems so big in my life three years down the road is kind of a distant memory unless something jogs that memory. I've been reading my Aunt Elva Kelton's book that she wrote about her, the faith of her parents, which would also be my grandparents. That's an Ebenezer stone. I just today checked out Ted Veer's autobiography from the library. I'm looking forward to tackling that next. That's an Ebenezer stone, a testimony to what God has done. Those are important. We need to keep moving through Samuel's life. Moving on to chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Why was Samuel displeased? Perhaps the accusations against his sons? That would have been reason to be displeased. Perhaps the forced early retirement. Maybe he didn't think he was ready to be done being judged. That would have been reason to be displeased. I think more, though, it was the people's attitude. They were very demanding. Give us a king. And they had the wrong motivation for wanting it. They wanted to be like the pagan nations around them. There was no seeking God's will first. There was no... Could you pray about this and see if God would give us a king? It would be extremely disheartening to see the people you've ministered to your whole life falling away from God. Samuel had led them in this great revival, and now they're backsliding. It would have the effect of making you feel like a failure. And I think that's why Samuel was so displeased. Notice Samuel's response to this displeasure. He responds the same way he responded in the face of fear, prayer. 
And how does God answer Samuel's prayer? Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Now you know how I feel. And that's how God feels every time we reject his authority in our life. That stings a little. God says to Samuel to warn the people of what the consequences will be. Samuel does. He faithfully obeys God, and they stubbornly refuse to hear. He once again turns to God in prayer. Verse 21, when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. You know the whole King Saul story. If you don't, maybe read it for your quiet time this week. Let's skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 17. This is the grand picking of the king ceremony. It's like the NFL draft and the presidential election night all rolled into one and magnified by 20. We just saw Great Britain pick a new king and all the pomp and circumstance and the excitement and all they got was old Prince Charles. This would have been exciting. It's somebody you don't know. It's got to be better than Prince Charles, right? I can't imagine the excitement. And we'll read what Samuel says. He deflates the whole shebang. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, oh, chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Talk about all, letting all the air out of a room. He reproaches for them for their sin again. He lays it out as plain as can be. Then at the end, he refocuses the people on God. In verse 25, Samuel says, He told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Samuel is constantly turning the people back to God. He explained the scriptural regulations for the king from Deuteronomy. Let's skip to Samuel's retirement speech in chapter 12. It's too long to read completely. My wife told me she was going to laugh at me if I went over time, and I'm going to. I'm sorry. It's something about standing up here, I guess. Samuel gives a history lesson establishes that he has never misused the authority of a judge, and then once again God answers Samuel's prayer with a thunderstorm, proving that they were wrong to ask for a king. Samuel then closes his speech with instructions and three promises. These instructions would fit for all of us who have made sinful choices on how to live going forward. And the promises sum up Samuel's ministry. In verse 19, the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. He doesn't sugarcoat it. 
Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. We're going to skip over the instructions because I'm running out of time fast. But look at the promises. He promises two things. He promises to teach them what is good and right. He's once again passing on God's word to them. And he promises to pray for them. In fact, he says it would be sin for him not to pray for them. That seems pretty strong. How would it be sin not to pray for somebody? Well, I thought of several verses from the New Testament that would lend credence to this idea. In James 4.17, James says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Is there anything we can do that benefits someone more than praying for them? If we know we should pray for somebody and we don't do it, James says it's sin. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the context, the healing could be spiritual or physical, maybe both. Another verse was Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul loves to do that. All those alls, that's humbling. This verse gives us all something to improve on, I'm quite sure. When I promise to pray for someone, I'm relieved that I remember to do it, so that I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I remember to pray for them like I said I would. No, that's not the kind of praying that Samuel was doing for the Israelites, and that's not the kind of praying that Paul had in mind in Ephesians. So how do we get better at praying for each other? I think the first thing is just to spend more time praying. That seems pretty obvious, right? The more I pray, the more I think of things I should pray for, whether that's in my quiet time or whether I'm just out in the field driving tractor. If I start to pray, more things come to mind. Another way we can pray for each other better is to communicate what needs to be prayed for. I'm much better at praying for somebody if I know something specific that I need to pray about them. Yeah, I can come up with things to pray for them, but I'm lazy and I don't. But if I know something specific I need to pray for you, I might pray for you. So that's the end. Samuel's retired. He buys his dream home overlooking the Dead Sea, does some traveling, visits the Great Pyramids in Egypt, gets caught up on his reading, learns to fish. You guys are giving me a strange look. Actually, there are four more stories involving Samuel after he's retired. God wasn't done with Samuel, even though he was retired from being a judge. Quickly turn, real quick, I promise. 1 Samuel 15. We won't interact with all of these stories, but in 1 Samuel 15, we get a glimpse of Samuel's ministry and how it was exactly the same as it always had been. 
He just wasn't a judge anymore. 15, 10, and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Here he's angry, and he's praying to God about it. Followed by confrontation of sin in the life of King Saul. Verses 20 to 23. You know these verses. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. I find it interesting that perhaps the two most famous quotes from Samuel come in his old age, after his retirement. This one, as well as the one in chapter 16, verse 7, where he, this is actually God talking to Samuel. Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel didn't quit when he hit retirement age. His ministry changed. Perhaps he had less responsibility, but he was still faithfully praying. He was still faithfully declaring the truth of God's word. In fact, the last time we see Samuel alive, in chapter 19, he started a seminary. Samuel was looking to train the next generation to carry on his ministry after he was gone. Samuel was an ordinary guy, but he was used in extraordinary ways by God because of his commitment to prayer, because of his commitment to the word of God. If we would be used like Samuel, we would need to practice the prayer and the Bible study like Samuel did. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the testimony in your word of how you can use an ordinary guy like Samuel in extraordinary ways, of how you long for a relationship with us, for us to come to you every time we're upset or afraid, to bring our concerns to you, and to bring our petitions for other people to you. Please help us to keep that in mind this week as we go forward, how much you long for that relationship with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.